everybody. This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse, and I have Michael Smith with Real Talk School of Nursing on today, another podcaster. Hey, Michael. How you doing? I'm good. So I always love having other podcasters on, but also especially when they're nursing podcasters. That's kind of neat. There's not a whole lot of us out there. So it's it's nice to be able to have a, a another nurse who's also a podcaster and we can kind of, we have kind of have two things in common. So uh, just before we get started, tell everyone a little bit about your podcast. So I talk about life issues. I don't talk about content hardly at all, if any at all. Nursing school is more than just learning content. You have to be able to do life management, time management, how do you set yourself up to learn the best? And so I talk through my three pillars of, of nursing school are, are prereqs, nursing school, and then uh, new grad and NCLEX prep. And that's pretty much the show. Well, it sounds perfect for our listeners because we have a lot of new grads and nursing students that listen to this podcast. Where can they find you if they want to look you up, Michael? As I used to do in my in my intro, it's, I'm available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Lipson Web Player, Stitcher, YouTube, Spotify, and SoundCloud. So <laughs> go to wherever you download podcasts, rate us, review us, listen to the show, share it with your friends. But uh, I've got a Facebook page that I basically feed from the Instagram feed that I make. I'm on Twitter, a little a skosh, and pretty much all the platforms. Wonderful. Yeah, thank you. So we are going to get started. It's so funny. Lately, I've been having people send me these stories. They're like, hey, did you know that this person was... And it's a story I'm really familiar with. Mm -hmm. I remember when this happened. I know all about this story. had no idea that one of the main people involved with this story was a nurse. I just did not know that. And that's this happened several times to me lately where people are like, hey, did you know this person was a nurse? If you guys have stories like this, please send them to me. It's real helpful for me. This story is amazing. It's like real life science fiction. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And like you, this is within my lifetime. Like, I remember when all this was going on. Yeah. So having said that, this is the story of Bonnie Nettles. Bonnie Nettles, I probably I didn't even know her name before this because I know it from the bigger context of what happened later. But this is a, it's a bizarre story. Bonnie Nettles was born in Houston, Texas. She was raised in a Christian home, and that will be significant later on in her life. She graduated from the Herman's Hospital School of Professional Nursing in 1948. Yeah. In 1949, she met Joseph Nettles. They got married. They had four children and pretty much had an uneventful marriage until 1972. At some point, she starts kind of getting into some different kind of spiritual beliefs. She started believing that a 19th century monk named Brother Francis would come to her in visions and tell her you know, what to do, kind of give her instruction and guidance on things. So she would have seances with mediums, trying to contact other deceased spirits. There probably wasn't. I mean, it was the 70s. There probably wasn't any mushrooms involved or anything, right? Surely not. Surely not. I mean, I didn't see anything <laughs> like that, but you never know. But in the broader context of the times, I feel like... <laughs> it it certainly wouldn't be surprising, that's for sure. Some psychedelics might have been involved. Maybe, uh, yes. Well, something was going on for sure. Something. She would have circle groups and, you, I, you know, you can just imagine this sort of thing from movies. You see people, you know, having seances in these circle, circle groups and she did that every week at her house. Wow. She studied astrology, theosophy, just putting those two, using my context clues, I guess, you know, the, some kind of combination between philosophy and theology, you know, religion, that sort of thing, and the occult. So in 1972, a fortune teller, so she was going to fortune tellers and she 
was told that she was going to meet a mysterious man. And they described this person as tall, with light hair and a fair complexion. That description was vague enough, you know, that that she could make that work with anyone. Pretty much anybody, yeah. So in March of 1972, she did meet a man. His name was Marshall Applewhite. He went by Herf. So by this time, her children were getting older, and her oldest was grown and working. And she was working at a local theater that had a drama school. And so Bonnie's working at a hospital as a nurse, her daughter's working at this theater. Someone gets hurt there at the theater. So they're injured. They have to go to the hospital. And that is where Marshall Applewhite, who was working at that school, of ner- uh, the drama school, met her, taking this person there who got hurt. So they meet there, and apparently sparks fly, and they just hit it off. Bonnie Nettles was sort of in the process of getting a divorce, kind of heading that direction. And Marshall Applewhite had already gotten a divorce because he was fired at a uh, from a previous job as a music teacher because he had had an affair with one of his male students. Someone encouraged Marshall Applewhite to talk to Bonnie Nettles about getting her to do an astrological chart on him. So she did these charts. I don't really understand all of this stuff and how it works. <laughs> but apparently she would do these charts. She understood how... To, to do some sort of chart on a person that would kind of reveal things about them. And I guess she did his, and his chart looked different than any other she'd ever done. Um, it was very, I don't know, mysterious. So um, they had a almost instantaneous spiritual connection, the two of them. And so they connected and took off on New Year's Day of 1973. She left her three younger children with their father, with her ex-husband, her oldest daughter, Terry, who was 20 at the time, didn't really go along with a lot of her mom's ideas, but she would talk about how her mom would stand out in the backyard and look up at the stars and, and try to find a spaceship. They would literally be looking for a spaceship and how she wished that a spaceship would come and take them away. So her daughter remembers these things, but her, her, her daughter was pretty much left at, you know, at 20 to bend for herself. So Nettles, Bonnie Nettles and Marshall Applewhite or Herf, whatever you want to call him, they established the Heaven's Gate community together and they were equals. It wasn't like one was supposed to be over the other. Bonnie Nettles was considered, I guess, the brains and more behind the scenes than maybe more spiritual person. And Marshall Applewhite was the front man, the charismatic person, the mouth, if you will. And this is where the story starts to get interesting. Yeah, as if it wasn't strange enough already. You know, I said she was she grew up in a Christian home. They they were Baptists. She sort of started getting away from Christianity, but still had her beliefs tied from the Bible. I I don't know if she was just getting a different kind of interpretation or or what, but they started seeing themselves as the two witnesses that are mentioned in the book of Revelation from the Bible. So these two witnesses apparently are sending a message of judgment and they are martyred and re- resurrected and taken to heaven in a cloud. The way they interpreted that is the cloud is a flying saucer and they believe that Jesus himself had actually ascended <sighs> to heaven. Oh my goodness. Yes, and that heaven is the level above human or T-E-L-A-H. I, yeah, tella. Yeah, Tella. Tella. They believe Jesus went to heaven in a spacecraft and that 
Marshall Applewhite had arrived on earth from that same realm, tele realm, and that when he came from that realm to earth, he brought with him the heavenly father who was in fact, Bonnie Nettles. That is a, that is a lot of mental backflips. Mm-hmm. It really is. <laughs> so they were committed to this though. That was their story and they were sticking to it. So, But they traveled all around the U.S. and, and did this, didn't they? Yes. Like They were all over the place. Mm-hmm. Yes. They were looking for new members. They were trying to proselytize other people into this group, into the Heaven's Gate group. And mm-hmm. so they would get new members and they did that over a period of several years. In 1976, she, she said they weren't going to be accepting any more members and they pretty much settled in and decided they were going to focus in on the members that they had been able to gather over that past three years that they had been, you know, they started in 1973. So then about three years, they gathered people and then they all just, they, they, she pretty much said, okay, no more new members. And they wanted to really focus in on those people. And I guess sort of trying to, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say brainwash (laughs) these people. I mean, what else really would it be? Because they are focusing in, they're, separating them from their family and friends. They would move around a lot so that they wouldn't become Mm -hmm. attached to any particular place or connect with people. One of the members received a large inheritance. I mean, a large inheritance because they had a lot of money. That member donated the money to the group. So now they have plenty of money and so they move all over the place (laughs) and it's just this little group, you know? (laughs) Nothing nothing like a bunch of crazy people with, with unlimited funds. I'm telling you, talk about creepy. So in 1983, she, Bonnie had to have an eye removed because she was diagnosed with cancer. And then her her doctor told her at that time that the disease is actually spreading throughout the rest of her body. And she pretty much said, well, that doctor doesn't know what he's talking about. And that can't possibly be true because... I'm the heavenly father. Right. I'm the heavenly father and Marshall Applewhite and I are going to be ascending together. We're not, you know, this is not going to happen separately, right? Well, the cancer had in fact spread to her liver and she died on June 18th in 1985. And just from a humanistic standpoint, you can you can feel a little bit of like sympathy for somebody who's who's seems to clearly have some mental health issues have somebody in her life who not only encourages it, but seems to kind of further the the psychosis and stuff like that, you know, and then is struck with kind of a terrible disease and then doesn't seek treatment and it gets worse. And in a, in a period of two years goes from being diagnosed with cancer to, you know, dying of it in two years. And that just, I mean, you can have a little bit of sympathy for the, for the circumstances and kind of be amazed that we've come as far as we have, as far as like mental health and the spread of, of, of how we handled mental health now. I mean, it's not perfect by any means, but boy, if she had just run into a, you know, a single ER nurse somewhere along the line, I feel like <laughs> maybe, maybe today there'd be a little bit more help for somebody like that. Maybe. Uh, it's hard to say because there really wasn't any, I didn't find anywhere in any of the stories. There are a lot of stories out there mm-hmm. about this, about what happened. You can just find them all over, documentaries, articles, just all kinds of things about her, about Applewhite, about the Heaven's Gate community. Mm -hmm. And nowhere did I see that she or Applewhite were ever officially, you know, diagnosed with any sort of 
mental health issues. And so it could have been, to me, they could have just been bad people who wanted to manipulate other people and talk them into doing things. Or it could have been that they had mental health issues and they really did sort of lose touch with reality. And together, you know, these two people with both having uh, issues like that ran at each other and it just created a nightmare for a lot of people. Or one of them could have had problems and have could have yeah. been manipulating the other. There's so many things that could have been going on. Or, I mean, let's be real here. They could have actually been aliens from out of space that were brought here from a spaceship. I think that's the most likely one. Well, I do too, but I didn't want to say that myself because I don't want to be... <laughs> This is definitely going to end up on the History Channel. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's just such good information. But he, like, he went through this whole, he went through, like, a whole big withdrawal thing. Like, like she died, and then he kind of, I mean, he really started to lose it after that, didn't he? Well, yeah, because it really, if you think about it, it really kind of contradicted everything that they had been saying. It, he claimed she was the Heavenly Father in human form, that they came there as aliens and they had to take on a human form. So if that was the case, how could she not have control over her own body? How could she die? So he was really devastated for a while about, about that. But in true Marshall Applewhite form, he bounced right back and <laughs> didn't take long before he started convincing the rest of the group that it was just that her body was a broken down vehicle that was left behind and he had her cremated and had her ashes spread out on a lake and explained to the group that she had to leave because her work at this level was finished. She had to go back with Atila. She had to go back with uh, with Atila. He still had more work that he had to do here, but that Bonnie would be continuing to help them from the next level. That sounds that sounds like something that sounds like somebody's something like a a, a wife would tell their husband and be like, uh, "You still have more work to do. I'm going to go upstairs and." If you need help, I'll be supporting you. Yes, from afar. <laughs> <laughs> Let me know when the garage is clean, sweet pea. Right. <laughs> so the group actually did stay together for over another decade, and they lived together in a large mansion. That I read somewhere that they've spent like $7,000 a month to rent this mansion. They could have just bought it if with a big inheritance or something, couldn't they? And then they yeah. wouldn't have to, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. We're, we're probably not going to get fine, very good financial advice from these people either. They pretty much kept themselves for that decade and just did their own thing. They didn't really bother anyone. And they were supposedly trying to just perfect themselves. But then in 1997, there was, there was a certain astronomical event. You guys, I have to be, I have to be totally honest here. I, I've tried to say this about three times now and I've said something stupid every time. You guys get to you get to miss all my dumb things that I say sometimes because sometimes they get left in. But the magic of editing. I know. Sometimes I'm just like, wait, that wasn't right. And I get to take it out before it gets released. Sometimes it gets released and then I get nice emails from people saying, No, you're an idiot. That's not true. But we'll say it the correct way this time. And there was a comment that that went flying through the sky in 1997, and that was Hale Bop comment called that because of Alan Hale and somebody with the last name of Bop <laughs> who discovered it. And so this comet's going through the sky, and you can imagine people who are kind of fixated on all things 
astrological and astronomical and all of that, that an event like this that basically only comes around, what, every several thousand years, it's probably going to have an effect on them, right? Well, they do definitely get fixated on this comet. And so on March 26, 1997, at 3.15 in the afternoon, an anonymous 911 call came into the San Diego County Sheriff's Department and they were told to, quote, check on the welfare of the residents at the mansion where they were living. The caller was one of the members of Heaven's Gate. And the caller said, yes, I need to report an anonymous tip. Who do I talk to? And the sheriff's department, you can hear them saying, okay, this is regarding what? And the caller says, this is regarding a mass suicide and I can give you the address. So I'm sure that was a very eerie phone call for that dispatcher to be. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. And they... I'm sure they probably get a lot of prank calls, so they never know whether to take something seriously. Of course, they did take it seriously. And the police found the bodies of all 39 members of the Heaven's Gate cult. By this time, this the members had kind of dwindled down to 39 people. They were all dressed in matching black outfits, and they had black Nike high-top sneakers on, and all of them but two had a black cloth draped over their faces and a purple cloth draped over their chests. And they had taken a mixture of phenobarbital and vodka, and then they placed plastic bags over their heads. So they sort of drug overdose slash suffocated. And they went in groups of like 15, 15, and nine. So like they, 15 of them, and then everyone else that was left sort of cleaned up after them. And then the next 15 went, and then the nine went. Apple White was the third one from the last that went. And then the last, uh, one of the last two were the ones that made that phone call. And so they were, they were the ones that obviously they couldn't, they didn't have anyone to drape the the purple cloth over them, but it was very strange. So one of the last people uh, like made the anonymous tip and then drank the the vodka and put the bag over their head and died. Yes. Yeah. And so they were found that way. Right. Wow. That's dedication. I mean, Mm -hmm. I mean, you could, if you're in nursing school, I feel like you could learn something from this level of dedication to a cause. Well, because they obviously were committed, and there were people all all age ranges in that group. It's amazing, yeah, and just I guess they mm. really wanted to believe in something. Maybe who knows? Maybe there was drugs involved. Maybe they. I'm sure there was a combination of a lot of different things. You know, I mean, having having phenobarbital on hand is, I think, a a an indicator that there were other stuff going on that that may have not been pharmaceutically sanctioned mm-hmm. by the USDA. Well, that whole event was heavily, heavily publicized in the media. Yeah, yeah, I remember this. I do too. There have been so many pop culture references since it happened, really. I I still hear references to it. Family Guy, I know that shortly after it happened, Saturday Night Live did a skit on it. I think there's some there's some kind of reference. Uh, is it in um from Office Space or something like that? Like one of the guys tried to start a cult and uh and then they were all gonna drink the cool well drinking the kool-aid that's mm-hmm. that's the that phrase comes from this i think well you're drinking the kool-aid i think maybe drinking the kool-aid actually came from jim jones uh and that uh there was an event that happened in the 70s who similar sort of figure but he was more he was not necessarily into the science fiction he was more of just a charismatic person that had people following him and so I, i'm probably getting things mixed up then yeah he literally <laughs> 
had every, he mixed up Kool-Aid and had his followers drink the Kool-Aid. And that's literally where that comes from. Drink the, drinking the it's Kool-Aid amazing. is from the Jim Jones. If you, if you Google Jim Jones, which such a God. common name, guarantee you that's what's going to come up because he is just, and he's so creepy looking. If you look, oh, he is so creepy, but apparently very charismatic and people just followed him. They just, you know what you're going to do to me. Now you're going to, now you're going to send me down all these like little rabbit like, holes. Da- you're going to send me down the rabbit hole. So now I have to, now, Jim Jones. Now I'm going to have to like, <laughs> yeah. and somebody's going to, and somebody's going to make some reference to it at work. And we're like, oh boy, you sure are drinking the Kool-Aid today. Now you'll I'm know. Like, you know where that came from. I <laughs> know. <laughs> Fun fact. <laughs> yeah. And the sad thing is when that, when it happened, I mean, it's a fascinating story, what all he did, uh, those people, but when it all finally ended there in like this big church mission compound place that, that he was trying to build and I don't even, I think it was like South America somewhere. He had people killed who were, who didn't want to drink the Kool-Aid. So basically he had armed guards standing there. And if people didn't want to take it themselves, they really didn't have a choice. And then he ultimately killed himself as well. So yeah, that's where that came from. Mm. There's been several stories like that of people you have mass suicides. It's unbelievable the the power that one person can have over an entire group of people. It really is amazing to me that you can actually yeah. cause them to do something like this. Amazing. So Alan Hale, who was one of the co-discoverers of the comet, was drawn into the story. He said his phone never stopped ringing the entire day when this happened. I guess the media was wanting to talk to him. And he said that well before this happened, he actually told a colleague that we're probably going to have some suicides as a result of the comet. He said, the sad part is I was really not surprised when it happened. He said, comets are lovely objects, but they don't have apocalyptic significance. We must use our minds, our reason. And that was what he made it an official announcement, like at a conference the next day after he had a chance to kind of look up what what all happened. And that was his point of view. But that's the story of Bonnie Nettles, the nurse who was also, would also end up founding a group. And then well after her, you know, years after her death, would all of this stuff would happen as a result of that. It's just, it blows my mind. Crazy. That's a good story. So I guess we can start talking about our good nurse this week. We always like to have somebody to kind of balance out um, the show. We talk about the bad nurses or do- bad doctors. We, we, we don't just pick on nurses, of course. We like to, <laughs> <laughs> we, we like to be equal opportunity. Um, picker honors. Picker honors, yeah. And so, but we also say, we talk about those things because we don't want to just pretend like nothing bad ever happens. Like there aren't people in this world who do bad things. So we definitely want to shine a light in those dark spaces and bring that out in the open so everybody's aware of things that can happen. But then we also like to balance it out and remind everyone how wonderful our profession is, the medical profession, nursing in particular. And this week is no exception. This is about Colonel Lawrence Washington. He was born on October 20th in 1935. That was a long time ago. Again, a little back in the day. He was born in Washington, D.C. to Charlotte and Isaac Washington. He received his BSN in 1968 from the University of Maryland and then got his MSN in 1972 from the Catholic University in Washington, D.C. So... He worked in psychiatric mental health nursing. I think this is kind of interesting to balance 
uh, the show out with all of the stuff that that went on, even though we said we we don't know for sure it was related to mental health issues. I think it's fairly safe to assume there had to have been something at some point, whether it's the two people who were running that whole thing or some of the people who were following them. I'm sure at some point there was some mental health issues. Both. Yeah. yeah. But this nurse, Colonel Washington, worked in psychiatric mental health nursing from 1966 to 1967. And then in June of 1967, he became the first male nurse, black or white, to be commissioned in the army. I thought that was just kind of interesting. I don't know uh, that he was the first male nurse, period, but that the first male nurse was black. What, what do you think? Well, in reading up on this story, I'm, I'm a military veteran myself, and I spent 10 years in the infantry. And there are, you know, not to bring too much of today's news into it, because I don't, that's, that's, a, that's a, a whole nother hole to dig at at another time. But um, I kind of wish that there was more of the military um, when it came to, like, the military attitude towards people in general um, that, that was more infused into the rest of society because like, don't take this the wrong way, but we don't care. I don't, I don't care. Like, uh, you know, the, the, uh, everything is based on, on merit attitude and, and how motivated you are to be the best that you can be And that. Boy, boy, that just sounded like a 1980s army commercial, but, <laughs> but, uh, but it, it, I mean, it really is that. And, and clearly Colonel Washington was a motivated, uh, you know, a motivated, motivated individual who, who had a passion for nursing. Um, I mean, probably how many males were in that class at university of Maryland in 19, 19- I mean, presumably in 1964, when, you know, all the civil rights stuff is still ongoing and all the changes are still being made. And yeah, he's up in Maryland, but, you know, graduated, how, how many males were in there? And then, and then furthermore, how many black males were in there? And I'm guessing zero. Yeah. I'm guessing zero. And so, you know, he is a, I mean, he, from the beginning, he just seems like a standout individual and then goes on and gets his master's degree in nursing, uh, you know, in D.C., and that just seems amazing. And then, and then to further on, I think, uh, and then, and then to become a a commissioned officer in the United States Army as a as a nurse again, you know, being the only one, yes, uh, is is quite amazing. And and I guess I'm not surprised that I'm not surprised that it was the military. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think that males. And again, like there's so many, there's so many things, and even in the profession today, where it's like, I, what difference does it make if I'm a dude or 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 not? Like I, I'm a nurse. Mm-hmm. My training is in this. So what difference does it make if I'm, I have the same skill set as everybody else in the room? Why? Yeah. Why is there a difference? It no, shouldn't I, matter. I, but the, uh, there was a time when it did matter, and there there were even laws in place that would prevent men from being hired in. Uh, or, or no, accepted into nursing schools in some states. It's just oh, it's so weird. Yeah, we've done several stories about that um, on this podcast where I, I just would sit there and scratch my head like, what? Is this real? I, and it, there, it's not that long ago. We're talking about maybe early 80s, I, I, I want to say, when stuff like that was going on. And it's just, it's, 
it's kind of bizarre, but it's sort of the reverse, you know, of what a lot of women have had to deal with over the over the years where women, and there was a time when obviously women were not allowed in the army or um, so I guess it may be. Well, not in the infantry anyway. Right. So, right. It depends on, depending on their role. So, I don't know. It's just things have to, sometimes things take time, years, decades, generations before they, cha- you know, they change, especially uh, depending on, you know, like in, in the army and certain cultures. But I just love that he, it's not like he was just, you know, just went to nursing school and decided to go into the army and was the first, you know, male nurse. But I mean, that's, that's good enough. That's plenty to me to be mentioned and yeah you could stop the podcast right you could yeah. stop the segment right there yeah that was and and so, be like hey there you go yeah Pretty awesome. it was a wonderful accomplishment but he did so much more yeah he kept going so much more <laughs> yeah in 1972 he was a psychiatric clinical nurse specialist at howard university hospital and then he was at the walter reed institute of nursing at the university of maryland from 1972 to 1977 and then in 1978 he was the first african-american male nurse to receive his military science certification from the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. He also worked as a nursing methods analyst on the manpower survey team at Fort Sam Houston. And then 1981 to 83, he served as chief of the Department of Nursing for the Army in Berlin, Germany. So 83 to 87, he was the first African-American male Army Nurse Corps officer to be promoted to the rank of colonel at William Beaumont Army Medical Center in El Paso, Texas. And then he retired from the military in 1987. And he received lots of awards and recognitions. The United States Legion of Merit, three meritorious service medals, good conduct medals, National Defense Service Medal, all sorts of of things. So he really accomplished a lot in his life. And I feel like brought a lot of, as a lot of most of our good nurses do, he really brought honor and integrity to our profession. So I really appreciate that. One of the, I'm trying to go back in as a nurse and it's, and it's stuff like this. Cause it's like you, you, I think once you start serving, um, it's difficult to give that up because you still want to, you still feel like a, there's still more that I can do and b, like that, that attitude, that, that need to serve something larger than yourself in a larger capacity, I don't think ever goes away. And so I'm, I read this and I'm like, God dang it. I have so much more to do, you know? And, and so it's kind of, I mean, he accomplished so much in his life, just, I mean, in a very short amount of time, really, but he retired. So he, he got in in 1967. So he served 20 years and in 20 years went from, from a Lieutenant and, and nurses typically don't at that time anyway, didn't get promoted at the same rate because most nurses were, at least those with who are commissioned, didn't really serve in leadership positions. Most of them were still staff, right? So think of a think of the difference between an officer and an enlisted person is that officers in other branches serve as leaders. So you're in charge. So if you're a lieutenant, you're in charge of a group of you know thirty or forty people, and that's your that's your role. Versus if you're a nurse, where you are a technician, and you're you know that's more of a technician role, and so they didn't get promoted at the, at the same rate. And so the fact that this guy, as a black man in the 1960s and 70s and 80s, uh, went from went from a lieutenant and then retired as a full bird colonel, 
pretty impressive. So it was it was the weight of his will on events around him that I think probably spurred him. I mean that that seems very evident from the story is that he's a he was a very powerfully uh, he's a very powerful personality and obviously very motivated and. I mean, that just seems incredibly evident. So yeah, crazy. Awesome. Well, I'm definitely um, inspired by him and humbled by him for sure. And I, I'm just really proud of him. I'm, I always get so excited when I find stories like this of nurses who were able to accomplish so much. And it just reminds me how amazing the profession really is and all the people who do so many wonderful things. We do talk about some pretty bad stuff on this podcast sometimes. In fact- Mass suicides, for example? I, well, yeah, that's one <laughs> one example. I mean, sometimes we talk about nurses who are deliberately hurting their patients, and those are the ones that break my heart the most. No. And they're just so disgusting because I just think, you know, our, our profession is supposed to be the most trusted profession, and, and it it is so full of wonderful, amazing people. So it's really sad when you find a bad apple like that who- Really, but that's the reason. I mean, but that's the thing, though, is that is that uh, you know those. I mean, the reason that you know about those is because they are rare. If it was, if it was something that was just commonplace, you wouldn't know about hardly any of them. Mm -hmm. And and the thing that we have to know about good and evil is that you know there's a there's a human there's a line that that's drawn down the human heart, and you are both good and bad. You are not all good and you are not all bad. You are both. And and there are things, there are decisions that you make sometimes, I bet, in your life where you're just like, you know, I could have done better. Or or I regret that decision and stuff like that. And and the the archetype, if you the archetype story, for example, is like Cain and Abel, you know. And it's uh you know, no matter no matter how able you are, there's still a little bit of cane in you. You know, there's no matter how good you are, there's still a little bit of bad in you. And it's the person who, who recognizes that that does exist. And, and that no matter how bad someone else is, that they still have good in them. You know, that's what being a nurse is about is that recognizing that, that you have the capacity and other people around you have the capacity for good as well as bad. And that no matter what you're doing, there are a few exceptions, I think, in, in our history, but there are people out there who we would consider bad, but there's still something good about them, and they're not all bad. Like, I refuse to believe that, and the balance part of that argument is that somebody is all good, you know, because they have this, or they do this, or they, you know, have achieved this position. There are very few exceptions of all good or all get bad people in our history, and I'm no exception, you're no exception, is that... We want to be good, ethical people, but we all have the capacity for both. Oh, I, I definitely agree. At any time, you know, we can find ourselves making questionable decisions or, you know, bad decisions. I, I definitely think, though, that there are certain people who cross a line that most people would not cross. Absolutely. For whatever Absolutely. reason, they they just don't have the whether they don't have the capacity to care for other people or empathize or they don't value human life. I don't know what they don't have the ability to think about the consequences of how, how it's going to impact others or, or they just don't care. Yeah. Because I do believe that most people would not, most people are not going to make a deliberate act against another person that they know is going to inflict pain or suffering on someone, especially nurses and people in the medical 
field in general. I don't think that that's the way most people are. So you yeah. have somebody- The vast majority. The, yeah, so these people who, for whatever reason, just want to come along and just do unspeakable things mm-hmm. just boggles the mind. So I want to I want to point out one other thing with, with Colonel Washington, because um, I can math. Uh, what has come up in a lot of the nursing groups I belong to and uh, what what else has come up in just personal conversations and certainly came up in my life is that so Colonel Washington uh, received his BSN in 1968. So he was born in 1935, which means he was over 30 when he graduated from nursing school. And by t- like, I get all the time is that, oh, I'm too old to go back to school or, you know, am I too old? And and nursing seems to be one of those professions that attracts a lot of people as a second profession. Like this is a, a second degree or something like that. And, and I don't know if it's because, you know, people like me, for example, who kind of shunned away from the sciences as a, as a younger person. And I didn't think I was smart enough or good enough for that kind of thing. And then at some level or at some time, I just said, you know, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to go for it. And I'm not going to let something discourage me because certainly because of my age, but anything else like that. And, and I think it's important for people to realize that if somebody like this can, can accomplish that much in, in the short amount of time that he served in the military, you can certainly accomplish that much in a short amount of time you know, it, there's there's no stopping you. I mean, he had to overcome a ton of stuff to get accepted into University of Maryland as a as a black male going into a nursing program in 1964. Again, pr- presumably 1964 if he graduated in 1968. And you know, in my own life, I had two year old twins when I started nursing school. I was 35. I don't know, 34, 35, somewhere in there. Like it makes a yeah. Yeah, I think 34. And those are things that people have to overcome. And those experiences shouldn't be looked at from a disadvantageous point of view. They should be looked at as advantages. And the bad things that can sometimes happen in our life, those are opportunities to build strength. Because it's the people who have been through horrible hardships, I think, and can come out the other side those are the wisest people that you will ever meet in your life. Those are the people that you can go to and say, like, give me some perspective on this. It was the older students in my program who were seen as resources for the younger students because it's like, oh, this is so hard. And not to be stereotypical about the reactions to it, but it would be like, this isn't bad. Like, I've been through worse. You're going to go through worse. You know, it's okay. You're going to make it through this. And and that kind of encouragement you know, I don't want to say that it's, it wasn't like, this isn't bad. You'll be fine. You know, it wasn't like that, but it was like, but it was like, you know, I've been through something harder than this, worse than this. We're going to be okay. We're going to make it through it. Like, just hold on to your hat. You'll be fine. And, and we're going to make it through it because I've been through something harder. A great example was like, you know, sleep deprivation. Well, there's ton of that in the military. There's tons of sleep deprivation in the, in the military, but, uh, having, newborn twins at the same, you know, twins at the same time. Like, it's a good thing there are pictures that exist of that time period because there's so much I don't remember at all. <laughs> and so when I started feeling tired and kind of started feeling sorry for myself going through nursing school, I'd be like, been through harder. I've been through harder. I can make it. And I think that, you know, 
So we, we shouldn't hide from hardship. And, and I think probably given the time that he was born in and uh, given the experiences that, that you can kind of infer from, uh, from where he was and what choices he decided to make, you can infer that he, he grew up and had a lot of hardships in his life that probably gave him what he needed in order to be the first uh, black man to probably, I mean, to be, I mean, I can almost guarantee he was the only black guy in, in his graduating class, 100%. But what kind of things in his life led up to that decision and for him to make the decision and say, yes, this is something I'm going to do and do it successfully and then move on to a military career that, I mean, 20 years to make full bird colonel in, in the nursing profession at that time is unbelievable, unbelievable. So I think if there's anything that I'm taking out of this story is that we shouldn't shy away from the hard stuff. We should be joyful in the hard stuff because there's there's things that we can learn about about life and about ourselves by being by going through that. I agree. I agree. That's definitely something we can certainly learn learn from him. Uh, one of the many things that we can. Well, I appreciate you coming on to the show with us this week, and hopefully you'll come back again at some point. If you enjoyed it, I'd be, I'd be delighted. I'd be delighted. This is Michael Smith from the Real Talk School of Nursing podcast. Nursing school is a struggle for many. Everyone struggles at one point or another even that seemingly bulletproof student you're thinking about right now. Some people will struggle with tests. Some will struggle with clinicals or lab or sims. And some of those students who struggle with none of those things will struggle within the profession. Nursing school is a struggle for some from day one until the day you graduate. It was for me. It might be for you too. But trust me, if I can make it, you can. Just keep working hard be truthful to yourself. Be joyful in the hard stuff. On the other end of school is a profession that is amazingly hard. I'm not going to lie to you, especially in the first year. And the rewards, though amazing, are sometimes heartbreaking too. You will have to wade through a lot of muck and mud to get to these amazing little jewels of experiences that make coming to work worth it. Nursing and nursing school isn't just about learning content about learning the tasks that you have to do. It's about learning to grow through adversity, coming out the other end stronger. You will struggle outside of school too, but I promise you when you make it, it's worth it. So I'll see you on the other end of this crazy nursing school journey. You guys be sure and look up Michael on the Real Real Talk School of Nursing podcast and look him up on social media and see what that's all about. And you know, you can find me at uh, tina at goodnursebetters.com if you want to send me an email. 
if you want me to respond to you, that's the best way to do it. Because through social media, sometimes I don't always get those messages, or at least it's hard for me to respond to all these different places. But emails, I'm usually usually pretty good at responding back to you. Send me your stories. You know, I love it when you send me stories. And if you want to send me your corrections, you can do that too. I don't mind. Just be nice. (laughs) I'm I'm a little sensitive. Come on. And uh, you can go to our website at goodnursebadnurse.com. And there you can become a member of our Patreon. And you have extra material on there. We've got all kinds of plans to do on our behind our uh, Patreon wall where we call it the break room, where you kind of hear the uh, sort of the behind the scenes stuff that goes on here at Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Um, We've got lots of plans uh, for the future. Kiki and I are talking about doing maybe some little little podcast episodes that are us studying because we're studying for the CCRN right now. And we said- Yeah, I'm doing CEN right really? now. It's tough. Yeah. It's tough, yeah. It is not easy, but it's helping me clinically. As I, when I'm at work, I'm mm-hmm. seeing a lot of things that I'm studying about. So uh, Kiki and I were talking about how, wow, these conversations that we have while we're studying, what if we recorded them and- put our notes out there and people could have access to that. It's $3 a month to be a patron. It's not, you know, not the end of the world or that big of a deal, but it helps us out. It's definitely not cheap to run a podcast like this. We have equipment we have to buy and there's all kinds of monthly expenses, editing and Podbean and all of that stuff. So it just helps us out. If you guys want to do that, that would be great. And you can look us up on Instagram at Good Nurse, Bad Nurse or GNBN Podcast on Facebook and Twitter. And I just want to also remind you guys that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, please be a good nurse. 